pray together. Father, as we come this morning to open up your word, that's why we're here. We're gathered here. It is manna. I pray that this morning, Father, you would make the manna fresh as it falls from heaven, that it would be grace this morning for our souls and that there would be life and nourishment. We look at a, a people like us that have gathered here this morning, different circumstances, different trials. Yet as we look at the word, Father, may you address and speak to your people in a very special way this morning through your apostle, Paul. So bless, bless the service this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In the Bible, it's... Uh, it tells us on numerous occasions that we should meditate upon the scriptures. Now, when I think of meditation, unfortunately, one of the first things that comes to my mind is yoga or something like that and uh, some new age thing. But meditation isn't anything. It doesn't have anything to do with body posture or anything along those lines. It has to do with thinking upon something. And in new age Terminology, meditation is, you know, in yoga you think about nothing. Biblical meditation is thinking on the scriptures and and thinking on it and, and turning it over in your mind. I've heard the analogy of how a cow chews its cud, it eats it, and then regurgitates it. And it's, you know, it's a, a little crude, but it is the idea of meditation. How little. We really do meditate on Scripture. We probably all know we're supposed to read our Bibles every day, and we should read our Bibles. But for every command you could find that says read your Bible, you will find more exhortations to meditate upon the Scriptures, to think upon them. And I realize how often we just quickly read through the Scriptures. Thomas Brooks Puritan said, remember, it's not hasty reading, but serious meditation upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. Uh, This morning, I I like to try to read a psalm a day, and it's so easy just to read it and go on, but this morning, there was just, it was at the very end of the chapter, Psalm 114, speaking of the Lord and who he was, it says, who turns the rock into a pool of water. Now there's something to meditate on. Because I've never seen any rocks turn into a pool of water. The flint, it goes on to say, turn into a spring. Flint rock, there's no water, and he makes water come out of the rock. What does that mean? And, well, it means God does impossible things. That's what exactly what it means. And to meditate on that, how rich it is. I mean, you can just read through that, and I do it all the time. I'll just read through phrases like that and don't stop and just start thinking about it. And the Bible says when you, when you meditate on Scripture, it, it, it it's, produces this bounty, this harvest, and it's, it's enriching to the soul. And really, that's 
really all that sermon preparation is, or that's really the capstone of sermon preparation. The pastor should take a text of Scripture, and and as I've told other guys before, you should have studied that text and that verse more than anyone else you're going to to speak to. If not, find who it is and get them up there to preach. But you, you take that text and you turn it over and over. And meditation is more than just studying the Bible. It's more than just looking up the grammar. And it's more than just, uh, you know, finding out what the Bible says. And that's where I think a lot of preaching fails because we think, well, I'll just tell you what it says. And that's kind of what expository preaching has been come to know. Well, here, this is what it is. And well, God is going to bless his word. I'm convinced that preaching, because I'm, I'm always thinking, what is preaching? What's good preaching? The mark of good preaching is good meditation. Men that take the Bible, not only find out what it says, but turn what it says. Once they figure out what it means, turn that over and over. Think about it. What, and, and as you do that, connections are made, questions come alive, and, and transformation takes place. So meditating on scripture is so important. Now, because of the frailty of our human minds, we can only meditate on so much. I, mean, you, I, I take that little phrase, he turns the rock into a pool of water. That's not a very long phrase, but you know, that's about all my little mind can handle in one morning. That's why I think good preaching, preaching that evidence, evidences meditation usually can't cover a whole lot of passages because you can't you can't meditate really. I mean unless it's a narrative or something like that. You can't meditate on on, on a on a passage or two. I remember talking to a guy years ago and, and he he was a pastor. He said he was preaching through Romans and I was like, oh wow, how long have you been doing that? He said, ten weeks. I was like, wow, that's that's cool. Where are you at? He said, Romans ten. I was like, wow, you're moving right through there. Now, there's a, there's a time and a place for overview, and I'm, I'm fine with that. But meditation is so important. And the reason I'm talking to you about this is because when we come to Romans chapter 8, you will notice we've kind of come to a crawl. We're just kind of like verse... And, and the reason is, is because there is... There's too much to meditate on. I mean, to take these truths that are so big and just blow by them. I mean, Romans 8, 28 is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. And virtually every phrase, three main phrases in there are so big. It's like how, you can't just blow by this. And so it takes time to, to meditate on these things. To this point, just to rehash a little bit, um, the theme has been suffering and groaning which makes sense in context of Romans 8.28, of course. Go back to verse 17. The children of God are going to suffer. I mean, you will be an heir if you suffer. In verse 22, that suffering is ingrained in the very fabric of creation. Creation groans. Creation is subjected to futility and the curse and and sin. And so it groans. And then we spent significant time, verse 23, we groan under the curse. Uh, 
The curse that the ground and the earth is under, we groan. And that's, that's been fodder for a lot of conversations for people. And, and that's, I mean, the Bible comes alive, doesn't it? I mean, when you, you start seeing what this, the, these things say, what Paul's talking about, and then, then you go to work and you're like, yeah, it's cursed. It, it, this whole thing, there's, there's something wrong. There's a sense of futility in there. This week, I kid you not, well, I was talking to Matt. We were talking about last week his basement flooded with all the rains. And you're just like, ah, oh, you know. The, this week, of course, we're getting all this rain and it's mowing and the grass is growing. We're supposed to mow. So there was a break in the rain. And so I get out and I'm mowing as, as quick as I can. And it just starts a deluge. While, so I don't get it all mowed. So I, I get my mower in the garage and dries out the next day. I'm like, okay, I'm going to finish up. And my mower doesn't work. I'm like, I can't believe it. So I take it in. It's in the shop two or three days. Grass is growing. $225 to fix my mower. Okay, so it's like, oh, great. So this week, I get my mower back. I'm all excited because I can mow. I get less than half my yard done. Mower breaks again. Now, what's funny about this is instead of cursing and kicking the mower, I'm like, it's all cursed. It's already cursed. And I think my wife was surprised. I came in and said, I got to take it back to the shop. I wasn't yelling. I wasn't mad. And it's because these verse, verses like this are shaping my mind. Like, what should I expect? I mean, this is part of the creation. It's just breaking down. <laughs> this is fun. And take it back to the shop. I mean, that's what the world is. That's what Paul describes. We're, we, we, I mean, I laugh now, but we groan under that. We groan under broken bodies and just a broken world that we're in. We also groan because of our incomplete redemption, because of the first fruits. That's what Paul says. We groan because we acutely feel that we are not what we should be, that we, we, we want to be so much more than what we really are. We say to ourselves, what's wrong with me? Well, why, am, why am I still struggling with these things? Or I can't believe I'm struggling with this. I never thought I would have struggled with this. And we think it's... Something that only we do, we, we tend to think wrongly that, you know, good Christians or great Christians, they don't struggle like this. I, I, I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer, not only because he's a good German, but great pastor, great theologian. He, he's known one of the, as one of the great men of God. I mean, he stood up to Hitler. He remained faithful. He tried to encourage the church. He was eventually uh, arrested by Hitler, Nazis, and if you know his story, he was executed just days before, if not a day before, Hitler committed suicide. So, I mean, he was this close to surviving World War II. But in prison, he, he wrote, we have many of his letters and poems, and he wrote this poem, and it's called, Who Am I? And, and, and I read this, because, you know, if you were to meet... Dietrich Bonhoeffer today, or if you would have known Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think you would have been in awe of his intellect. You would have been in awe of his piety. You would have been in awe of his devotion. You would have said, this is a great man of God. And then to see how he would, he would endure his suffering. He wrote this poem in prison entitled, Who Am I? Let me just read to you this quickly. He, he really describes what other men thought of him and then what he thought of himself, okay? Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? 
They often tell me I used to speak to my wardens freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I really then all that which other men tell me of? Or am I only what I myself know of, of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. I would never think that Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have those thoughts of himself. But he's just like us. He only has the first fruits of his redemption. And he struggles. And we groan. And that's why verse 26, it says, In our weakness, the Spirit helps us to pray. When we don't know how to pray. And I go back to last week. I mean, isn't it wonderful when the Bible says, we don't know how to pray. How many times has that been the truth? I don't know how to pray about this. So there's, we don't know, but all of this brings us to one of the greatest, most comforting promises in all the Bible. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. We know God causes all things work together for good. Now, there's various translations, and they, they all interpret it a little bit differently. That's, that's the trouble, like when you memorize it in one translation and try to read it, and then you try to recite it, you get them all garbled up together. But, you know, the thing is, there's various ways to translate it, because there is, in the manuscript evidence, there's some longer manuscript readings, and there's some shorter manuscript readings. But e- even with some of the confusion, they all say the exact same. They all mean the exact same thing. We know God works everything together for good. That's the promise. And what I want us to do is just take this verse and and I, I want us to look at the promise of this verse, the recipients of this verse, and we will stop there because there was no more room for my little mind to keep meditating on it. Next time we'll look at the explanation for the promise, the reason, the grounds for the promise. But let's start by just looking at the promise. We know God causes all things to work together for good, or all things work together for good. We know. Whatever Paul must convey at this point, it's that he is speaking about some deep doctrinal 
transmission of, of truth that they know, that there has been this tradition that's been passed down to Paul, that Paul knows, that the church knows. They know this fundamental truth, God works all things together for good. Now, it's just fascinating for me just to think about that. We know somewhere in, in the mind of, of the apostle, he's assuming that in the minds of the believers, they already have this confidence, this knowledge, God works all things together for good. Now, I have to believe that it may have come by special revelation, but I believe Paul and, and the believers would have received this from the teaching of the Old Testament, from the character of God. As Their scriptures, they didn't have the New Testament. Their scriptures were the Old Testament. As they read the Old Testament, as they see the story of God in the, in the life of his people, they come away with this, this doctrine. God works all things together for good. Maybe it was from the life of Joseph. You know the story. The terrible things that happened to him. How his brothers murderously mistreat him. I mean, they might as well have killed him. They sold him into slavery. He prospers. He gets slanderously uh, gossiped against and ends up in a dungeon for years falsely. All these things. I mean, misfortune after misfortune. And in the end, he becomes vice regent of Egypt. And he meets his brothers. And God uses him to save not only the children of Israel, but really all of Egypt because of his plan and because of his knowledge. And in, in Genesis fifty twenty, you meant this for evil. But God meant this for good. I mean, that's... Evil actions were used by God, not made good. It's not good to sell your brother into slavery. God used evil and he turned it for good. Maybe it was the life of Job. I mean, you talk about a man who has suffered calamity more than anyone in this room. And to see all that he went through, and then at the end, to see that he is vindicated, he is exalted. God works all things together for good. Maybe it was in the story of Israel themselves. Just their history. Stiff-necked, rebellious, sinful people in exile. And then the prophet Jeremiah says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. I remember the first time I read those words. I wasn't even sure I was going to tell you this. But I, the first time I've read through the Bible, and I'd read through the Bible before the time, but it was, I walked into a men's restroom, and it was obvious women had decorated men's restrooms because men don't decorate the restroom. So they had, and there was in the men's restroom this plaque: "I know the plans that I have for you, plans for calamity, and not for calamity, for prosper, for a future and hope." And I remember being struck by that. Wow! And then I thought, "Oh, that's Jeremiah. That's written to Israel. How, how can I claim that?" That was my thought. I remember that. It was in church. I young man, 22, 23 years old. That's to Israel. God has a future for them. He he's, doesn't have a plan of calamity for them. He's going to give them a future and a hope. But I was skeptical. But you know what Romans eight twenty eight means? It means that 
all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. It means Jeremiah 29, 11 is applicable to me. It's really a backbone of Romans 8, 28. I know the plans that I have for you. My plans, and plans are always future, my plans are for your prosperity, for your well-being, not for calamity, to give you, and I love that phrase, to give you a hope and a future. If you have a hope and you have a future, you have everything that you need. Romans eight twenty eight. We know all things work together for good. Panta. Paul put all in there. Talk about need for meditation. All things work together for good. All things. All the things in my life. Taking your mower into the shop for the second time in a week. You know, sometimes we don't see the good, right? I mean, I haven't seen it yet. I, I honestly, because I'm, you know, I'm meditating on these verses when my mower breaks down. And it does change my attitude towards it, because... Humanly, I would be very angry, come in and throw a few things around, say, I can't believe that stupid mower. But I'm thinking on these things, and it changes the way I view them. And I'm thinking, I wonder what good's going to come out of this. And I kind of took it to the John Deere shop, and I thought, I wonder if something good's going to come out of here. Nothing particular happened. No, I didn't see any good. Sometimes we don't see the good. Sometimes we do see it after a long period of time. Some of the greatest disappointments in my life, I can think of two, that just some of the greatest disappointments of my life that I was angry with God, done, hurt, God absolutely used for my good. When I was in high school, the only thing I wanted to do was be in law enforcement. And I pursued that until 20 years old. That is the only thing I wanted to do. I prayed about it. I sought the Lord's will. I saw him open doors. I saw him leading me down this path. I was going that way. I saw the Lord working. I was making contacts. I knew it was going to happen. And then, without explanation, the door slammed in my face. I could not believe the... How, why would God do that? Because I had prayed about this for years, wanting the Lord's will, asking the Lord's will, and the Lord kept opening doors, kept going down this path, only to have the door slammed so far down the process. Angry at God is not an understatement. Why would you do that? I was making sandwiches at night. And my, my future was done, over. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to be making sandwiches the rest of my life. Which led to, well, I'll make sandwiches. So I got into a Subway sandwich. I got, started making sandwiches. It was great. Did that for eight or nine years. Wasn't very excited about that. And had this grand idea that I was going to get into politics. That was it. I could, I could do something worthwhile. Some of you didn't know that. I was a politician. But with a last name like Junkie, I should have known. 
I should have I should have seen the handwriting on the wall. This is not going to work. I in St. Joe there was a billboard that said vote for junkie. I kid you not. This is back in the 90s. I was so I was like this is it. This is my calling. I'll I'll be able to make lasting good and and it went great. God opened doors, made connections, raised money. I mean people were people were talking and I was all excited until election day. I didn't even leave my property. I stayed on our little farm, and I knew that morning before the polls even opened, I lost. And I remember just walking out into the woods, done. Done with God, done with just like, I'm, I'm done. And you know what my conclusion was? The only thing, I, I had one sandwich shop left. I said, well, I can make sandwiches. I'll just make sandwiches for the rest of my life. But, you know, I look back, and those were those two moments were so discouraging, so, I was so frustrated with God. Why would he do this? And yet, I look back through that and had the Lord. Faith Community Church is largely because God disappointed and angered me those two times. I mean, this I can't imagine. I mean, God would have done another work, but this work, where I'm at today, God brought so much good through that suffering. But you don't always get to see the good. We can't always point to it. We have this promise. All things work together for good. And that means... Since we can't always see it, it's taken by faith. And it's one of those promises. It's, I like what C.S. Lewis says about forgiveness. Oh, we love to talk about forgiveness. Just like we love to talk about all things work together for good. But we, we love to talk about forgiveness until it actually comes we have to forgive someone. It's like, oh, that's not so fun. We love to sing, blessed be the name of the Lord. I love it when that song comes on, especially when I'm not in the midst of the wilderness, especially when it's not raining. It's much easier to sing, blessed be the name of the Lord at a family reunion or a birthday than at a funeral home. And it's easier to say all things work together for good when everything is fine. It's very difficult when you're in one of those situations where it doesn't look like there's any future or there's any hope. And the Bible says God's promises all things work together for good. All things. Very comprehensive. It doesn't matter who you are this morning. This promise, well, it does matter who you are, doesn't it? Because the promise is for a particular recipient. It's not a universal truth. This is what I probably spent the most time meditating on. Romans 8.28 is not just some cosmic law like gravity. That everything kind of works out in the end. In fact... Because it's become something of conventional wisdom, it's really robbed the richness of this peculiar promise for believers. Because I see it, all all these inspirational posters, and I I saw one the other day, and, and it says, all things will work out in the end. If it hasn't worked out, it's okay because it's not the end. And that's kind of Romans 8.28 
But it's not Romans 8.28 because Romans 8.28 is not a general principle that everything's going to work out okay. Don't worry about it. It is a very specific promise given to a very specific people. To those who love God. Which means there are people out there in which tragedy and suffering and groaning befall them and it won't work out for good. That's exactly what Romans 8.28 means. To those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who do not love God, it doesn't work. There is no law out there that says, keep going, it'll turn out okay in the end. In fact, if we go back to chapter 2 of Romans, Romans says, those that, that are rejecting the kindness and goodness of God are storing up for themselves wrath on the day of wrath. It's going to end up badly. So there's two kinds of people in the world. Those whom it will end up always good and those who will end up always bad. And the defining mark is, according to Romans 28, 8.28, those who love God. Now that's the phrase that I just turned over and over, those who love God. It's in the emphatic here, which means Paul put it at the beginning of the verse to say, this is a specific promise to those who love God. That's how the Greek would read, all things work together for good. Very specific. And it's, it's a very unusual expression for Paul because Paul doesn't usually speak about our love for God. Usually, he's always talking about God's love for us. I mean, that's what he focuses on. And, he, well, I won't even. I'm thankful we sing songs both ways. I think we need to sing more about God's love for us. But we also sing about our love for God. And it's interesting here because Paul speaks of us as those who love God. Now, he could have said different designation. I mean, he could have said, for the believer, all things work together for good. He could have said, for the church, all things work together for good. For the brethren... But he didn't. He said, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Meditate on that. That deserves meditation. It deserves consideration. And I will tell you this, for the analytical, for the thoughtful people, that can be an unsettling meditation. Do I love God? Because that's who this promise is for. Loving God. I've thought of that often in my life. Do I love God? I mean, love, what an easy word to say. And yet, who can really define it? Who who can define love? I mean, and I know there's some definitions out there, but the average person, you know, it's going to be all over love. And yet we talk about, we sing about all the time. I mean, all the songs written about love. And I started listing them all, and they were all from the 70s and 80s. And I'm like, they're not even going to know these, so I won't even go through all these songs about love. I mean, I'm sorry, Randy, you'll know the, the older ones too, but 
And I didn't, I didn't do any country or anything like that, but love, all these things that we, this love that we sing about, and, but we don't really know what it is. I love vacations. I wrote down, I love morning coffee, and I scratched out morning. I just love coffee. <laughs> I love my wife. I don't love my dog. I realize, I mean, I don't love him. I tolerate him. He's okay, but I don't love him. But do I love God? What does that look like? What does it mean? Is it a feeling? I don't think love can be reduced to a feeling, but can you have love without a feeling? I don't, I don't. No. Do I love God? I know this. As I'm thinking on loving God, I know that Paul is not introducing at this point in the letter another, a third class of people. Unbelievers under the wrath of God, believers who are saved, and then, oh yeah, those who love God. I know without a doubt that those who love God is synonymous with the believer. I know that. But at the same time, I have to stop and reflect that Paul could have just said, the believer, all things work together for good. But instead, he describes the characteristic of the believer, which is those who love God. And as I meditate on that, it becomes for me a a test, an examination. Do I love God? I mean, if you would have said, do you believe in God? For those who believe in God, all things work together for good. I'm like, that's me. I believe in God. Do I love God? Loving God is no, no foreign concept. In fact, loving God is more prominent in the Old Testament. The the injunctions to love God is far more prominent in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. Those who love God is a description of those whom God promised good to. Let me just read you a few of these verses. Exodus 20, verse 6. He shows chesed, that is steadfast love, mercy. He shows chesed to those who love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might. Deuteronomy 10.12, what does the Lord require of you? To fear the Lord, to walk in his ways, to love him. Deuteronomy 11.1, you shall love the Lord and keep his charge. Deuteronomy 36, he will circumcise your heart so that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. I mean, the theme of loving God is so prominent in the Old Testament that when Jesus is asked about the law, what is the greatest law, he says what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. That's the greatest of the law. And Paul will say, that's the sum of the law. The law, keeping the law, 
shows love for God. And that's, that's the part when I say, okay, do I love God? I look at all these passages about loving God. The interesting thing is it's not just a feeling. It's not just affection. It's not just having a tender spot for God in my heart. Like, oh, I love him. When you look at loving God in the Old Testament, it's so often with a conjunction, and that conjunction speaks of obedience and loyalty to him. So listen, Exodus 20, verse 6. He shows chesed to those who love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 10, 12. What does the Lord require of you? To fear the Lord, walk in his ways, love him, and serve him with all your heart and mind. Deuteronomy 11, 1, you shall love the Lord and keep his charge. You cannot divorce loving God from obedience. You cannot divorce loving God from being loyal to him. If you don't obey him, you don't love him. If you're not loyal to him, you're, you don't love him. Now, when I reflect on that, love, you cannot separate love from obedience. You can't separate love from loyalty. As I meditate on that, those who love God, and I cannot separate obedience and loyalty from loving God. I don't walk away with a lot of assurance like, "Ah, yeah, I love God. Partly because of the first fruits, because I am not what I want to be. Who can really say, I love God? Who can say they love God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their might? Can anyone? Who can say that they keep his charge and keep his commandments all the time? Perfectly, no. I know this. Believers are those who love God. That love will be imperfect, but they will love him. We can't diminish this and say, oh, you know, we're fallen and we're not loyal and we don't keep his commands like we should, but we can love him. But we just, we need, there's a tension here that we need to keep. Loving God is being loyal to God. Loving God is keeping his commandments. Jesus himself says, um, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But we need to understand those who love God is not speaking about those who love him perfectly. I'm so thankful that the Bible gives us illustrations of imperfect love. Disciples who had imperfect love. And immediately what comes to my mind is Peter. John 21. I mean, he's sinned grievously against his Lord at the most inopportune time, at a time where Peter said, I'll die for you. And when that point came, he denied him three times. And so is the book of... John closes chapter 21. There's a very intimate moment with Peter and Jesus. And Jesus looks to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Now, Peter 
responds with a different word for love. Now, you may be able to make a case that it's like Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, I like you. I'm not sure that we can do that because I'm not, I'm not sure phileo has that, oh, well, we're just friends kind of a thing. But perhaps there may be something along those lines. But what happens in this, Jesus, Peter says, Lord, you, 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 know, you know I love you, phileo. Second time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, I love you, phileo. The third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And it says, Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time, do you love me? There's certainly correlations to three denials. In some way, Jesus is giving him this redeeming opportunity to three times affirm his love where he denied him three times. But it says he was grieved deeply in his heart. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. I think in many ways that is the heart of a believer. Lord, you know all things. You know how imperfectly I love you. But the believer does love God. I I just tried to ask myself, and we need to wrap this up, but what does the love of God look like? I mean, how do we know if we love God? I don't think it's always this this touchy-feely spot in our heart where we just kind of get butterflies when we think of God. I don't, I mean, maybe some of you do. I don't have that. I mean, there's times where I'm stirred, but I don't think that in and of itself is evidence of love. So I thought of a few things that I believe we could say shows, yeah, I love God. I think, first of all, when we are pained when we sin against him. It shows that we love him. Why do I do that? I don't want to sin against him. When fellowship is broken with God and and we're miserable and and we grieve, like when, when my, Lori and I, we talk about, you know, when things aren't right between mom and dad here, Tim and Lori, nothing's right. It's because this is the love of my life. And when that's not right, nothing's right. And the same goes, if not more so, with my relationship with God. If it's not right, nothing's right. Because I love God and I want to please Him. When when I'm angered, when I'm pained, when he, He is dishonored or blasphemed, it shows I love God. You know, I read, I, I try to read, I'm, I, I, I follow atheists on my tweet. I, I want to hear what they say. When I, when I see them so blindly and so arrogantly and, and so blasphemously de- deny God, it makes me angry because I love God and I know he deserve. he doesn't deserve that. John tells us that when we love his people, we love God. When we love other believers, and again, this context of the world hates Christians. I I love Christians. I love the church. 
1 John 4.12 says, If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I mean, God's love for us reaches its its perfect point when we love other people because that's what God's love does. It it makes us love other people. So that's uh, God's love for us. I love other people. But then John goes on, 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Forever does not love his brother whom he cannot see, cannot love God whom he has not seen. John then said in 1 John 5.3, this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I do believe those who love God is a synonym for believers, imperfectly loving God. But I, so when I see those who love God, I see those who believe God, because the only way I can love God is to believe God. And if, and if, and if Jesus says the, the faith of a mustard seed can save a soul. I mean, just the smallest faith can bring eternal salvation. I have to believe that even the smallest love for God is evidence of faith. But we need to remember this, and this is where I want to close, because if you're here this morning, you know, and you're, you meditate on those who love God, I, I want you to know this without a doubt, that love for God never originates from us. It never originates from within. I can't ever just pick myself up by my bootstraps and say, okay, I am going to start loving God more. It doesn't work that way. Loving God is always and only a response to God. The only way you'll ever grow in love for God is to receive from God, to know God, and to be loved by Him. There is no other way to love God more than to be more impressed, to be more humbled by His love for you, His goodness to you. And the more you receive of His love, the more you receive of His goodness, the more you can love God. It's always a response. John wrote, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that even when I sin, even when I don't love God, I come face to face with a God who loves me and gave his son for me so that I could be forgiven of my loveless, sinful heart. And as I receive his love, I can't help but love in return. He draws me in love. A lot to meditate on. For those who love God, all things work together for good. I'm just going to read you this quote that I saw from Spurgeon, and I'll close with this. He said, I bear, bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God seemed most cruel to me, he has been the most kind. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. Father, thank you for this precious promise. May you encourage the hearts of those that are in the storm, that struggle with the dark providence. 
May their faith be encouraged and strengthened so that those who love God may have the confident assurance all things work together for good. Thank you for this precious promise. Use it for the good of your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.